Well, hey everyone, good morning and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Special welcome to you if it's your first time worshiping with us this Sunday morning, whether here in person or online with us. We're always excited to uh, say hi, give a shout out to our online audience. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, no matter where you are doing so. Or if you're listening to this on the podcast later on, hey, what's up? Just a little something for for people in posterity there. But my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. And we are getting back into a uh, sermon series um, on the topic of wisdom. Um, We started our mini-series within that on the book of Job a couple weeks ago. We took a break for kind of an important thing called Easter, but we're back into it now this Sunday morning with our second sermon um, on the book of Job. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about how we want to be seeking God out when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering. We talked about how to have wisdom when we suffer well. And and the book of Job has got several things that are kind of going on that are important for us to be um, learning about. And we're going to try to hit up on all of those. But one of the big things is seeking God out wisely in suffering. Now, when we talk about how to suffer well, I think, you know, we do this a lot, but often we don't maybe focus on the lens of suffering as it relates to the community that we're in. And I think that when we talk about suffering, we have to talk about doing it in community, not just individually. I think that that's true on a couple levels, but for us, especially here uh, in the church, yeah, I think it's especially an important thing for us. Um, recently, I was reading the book of or the, the the letters to the Thessalonians that Paul writes, and it's just a couple of pages in your Bible, right? It's only a few chapters between both of those books, yet. In those two letters, the Apostle Paul uses the word adelphoi, the the Greek word for family, for brothers and sisters, uh, 24 times. So he's kind of constantly referring to the people he's writing to as his family. And the the big idea is the church is supposed to be a family with one another. Uh, The the obligation um, that you feel towards, you know, your flesh and blood family Paul wants us to have that towards each other in the church, too. And that's a, that's a strong thing when you frame it that way, but that's, that's what's being said. And so when we talk about suffering, I mean, typically, you, you know, you let your family in on, on, on what you're doing, and you try to comfort or, or, or suffer with people in your family who are suffering. And I think the goal for us in the church is, is to, to, to do the same. Everything that we do as Christians is supposed to be a community effort, and that includes uh, suffering as well. And so when one part of our family suffers, the rest of the family is supposed to also be suffering. Now, a couple weeks ago, if you remember in, in the sermon we introduced the book of Job, we talked about how suffering really is, is a journey. When you really enter into a period of intense suffering, you're, you're kind of entering into a journey that's going to take you somewhere new, and it's going to have different sort of steps along that process. And when, when someone we know is suffering, what we are supposed to be doing as the church, I think, is trying to get in the car with them for that journey. That's how we should, I think, be thinking about it when someone we know who is close to us, especially in the church, is suffering. We want to get in the car with them and try to travel with them along the the journey of suffering that they're going on. Now, this requires some give and take. It requires something from both people in that situation, in that car. Sufferers have to tell other people what's going on, what they're feeling. They have to invite them into the car. 
right? And, 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 and passengers have to learn how to make people feel comfortable, like inviting them into the car with them. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about what it looks like specifically for the, the person who is, who is the passenger in that scenario, the, the one who is sort of suffering alongside a brother or sister who finds themselves in the midst of intense affliction or, or pain or loss or longing of some kind. We want to talk about how to do that well and how to do that poorly. And, and so, so that's kind of our, our idea today for, for the sermon is we're talking about the path to wisely walking with someone who is in suffering, right? We, we talked a couple weeks about the path of suffering. Today, it's, 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 the, it's the path of walking wisely with someone in suffering. And so Job, who, who is kind of the, 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 the main character, the central person, human figure, at least, in, in the book of Job, um, he, he's in this intense period of suffering, and he has some buddies who come alongside of him, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who, who come to comfort him. And we're going to talk a little bit about what some stuff they do well, but also a lot of stuff that they do poorly, which is what they're, what they're known as, I think, more traditionally outside of the book of Job. They're known as bad comforters, poor comforters, poor friends. And, and we'll talk about why that is. But before we get into it, before we criticize them, I just want to say a few things in their defense, because we often find ourselves playing the role of these people in, in a negative way. I'm sure you can probably all think of times where you have been trying to comfort someone who is in suffering, and they're like, not helping at all, please leave me alone, <laughs> right? I, I know I have felt that before, uh, and, and so we, we, you know, let, let's just give a little bit of defense to these people. Like, these, these are smart and wise people themselves, okay? They're not hypocrites, they're not coming to dunk on Job and his suffering or gloat, at least not at the start. They're not fools. Um, they're not heretics. They're not like trying to intentionally go out of their way and say something that is untrue of God. They believe, in fact, that God is wise, that he's just, that he's in control. And actually, um, one of the things that, that one of them say gets quoted later on in the Bible positively. In, in 1 Corinthians, actually, the Apostle Paul takes one of the things they say and kind of use it, uses it to build a, a larger argument he's making, all right? So um, l- let's just give them a little bit of credit and also acknowledge that they're as blind to what's going on as everybody else in the book is other than God and the Satan who, who, who've kind of set everything in motion. All right, so let's just, ha- let's just try to remember that and, and remember that if, if you're someone going through suffering and you have someone come alongside you, that they're probably well-meaning even if they're being unhelpful in the moment. All right, try to give them a little bit of grace. All right, so let, let's get into it. Let's get into the text here. Let's talk a little bit about what these people have to say to Job that is both helpful and then the stuff that really gives them the reputation that they have of being kind of crummy friends <laughs> to Job who's going through a hard time. So just a bit of a recap, though, in case you're not familiar with the book of Job or you missed our sermon a couple weeks ago. Job is this righteous and wise person. He's put on a pedestal right at the beginning of the book of someone who has followed this path of wisdom that we've been talking about in this sermon series, and he's experienced great blessing from it. Um, and, and the Satan comes along, and he kinda, him and God talk, and they decide to see if Job will maintain his righteousness and his wisdom, um, even if he loses the things that God has given him. And that sort of sets the conflict in motion, where the Satan is allowed to go and, and afflict Job in, in, in some pretty drastic ways, and Job finds himself um, still 
viewing God as worthy of, of worshiping despite the fact that he has now lost pretty much everything that he has. Um, and, and so what happens is sort of God's policies actually get put on trial in the book, both his policies of rewarding the righteous and the wise, and then also we'll find, and, and we'll get into this more as the sermon series goes along, but also um, for how God treats those who are, are wise or innocent or, or righteous. All right, so a um, little background there for you, but let's get into it and let's talk about um, the, the big idea of this sermon, walking alongside of someone who finds himself in a time of suffering. So at the end of chapter two, we, 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 um, we, we came to the end of this uh, a couple weeks ago, um, we find that, um, that Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar show up. And when they saw Job from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. Um, they began to weep aloud, they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So they just show up, and they literally just sit with him for seven days in, in silence and sort of mirroring Job and what he's doing in his sort of grieving over the situation, they do it with him as well. They tear their robes, they sprinkle dust on their heads, and, and they, let, they wait for Job to speak first. I think this is really important. They, 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 what they're doing is they're letting Job invite them into the car with them. All right, so they wait for Job to say something. And eventually Job does speak up, and, he's, and this is what, how chapter three begins. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it, and no light shine on it. Um, what he's saying is, I'm not gonna curse God, but I gotta curse something, and I'm just, I wish I was never even born. Like, it would have been better if I had never been born and been given the things that I had been given that have been taken away from me to experience that loss. Like, I just wish I didn't even exist. I, I am so weary from this burden of the stuff that I've lost, I would rather I had never even had them in the first place, because then I would be avoiding this, the, the pain that I'm in. The pain that I'm in is far greater than the joy I ever had from having those things in the first place. And I, I would imagine that many of you in this room can relate to that feeling, perhaps, right? You, you find yourself in the middle of a period of suffering, and you, you maybe feel like Job does here. Now, Job, in speaking, though, he, and by being honest with uh, his friends here, what he's doing is he, he is inviting them to get in the car with him. He's inviting them to sort of speak into what's going on, to engage with him in this journey of suffering. And, and so let's talk a little bit about what his friends did well at the start there to, let, to make Job want to invite him in in the first place. And so I have a few points on that that I want to walk through. Some good things that we can take from this and we can use as we try to wisely walk through suffering of people we know. The first thing is to show empathy. The second is they grieve with Job. Third, they give their presence. And then fourth, they, uh, they point uh, Job to God. And we, we find this in, in the verse where it says, uh, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. And they began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads. So we find them at the start here showing some empathy to Job. Um, they're, they're basically saying, like, you don't know what to say 
and we don't really know what to say either. This seems, this seems bigger than all of us. And so let's just wait a little bit before we start talking about it. In fact, we want to enter into this with you. We want to understand it. We are going to find ourselves grieving as well. And so this, this tearing of the robes, the sprinkling on of the dust on their head, that's just sort of a ritual sign of grieving. And this is really what empathy is, is it's, it, it is getting in the car with someone so you can sort of experience the drive with them as they go along. Now often, people who are comforting someone going through suffering, they don't really want to get in the car with them. They don't want to sort of themselves try to feel and understand what is going on with this person. And so what they kind of do is they kind of try to make the sufferers like come to them instead of the other way around. Uh, they, you know, it's like, it's like they'll get on the phone with them while they're driving in the car, and they're like, hey, you know, I know things are really hard right now. I'm really ex- looking forward to you getting to where I'm at, and then we can hang out again. Make sure, you, you know, you take a right on Main Street. That's what I would do, um, and, and, I'll, and I'll, you know, but we'll see, we'll see you here later on, all right? They kind of talk to them as if they don't really care to understand what is going on for this person as they on this journey, and, and I think it's so important that, that we do that because if we're not willing to get in the car with people, if, we're willing to, if we want to kind of speak to them from a place of really not trying to understand what they're feeling and going through, then we're not going to be able to give them comfort or counsel of any kind because we just have no clue what, what is going on in their heads, what they're experiencing or feeling, and we're just going to be poor comforters. We're going to speak from a place of, of not understanding what is going on. And so it matters for us that we, that we get in the car with them, that we, we show we care to know what is going on. Now, the thing about empathy is, is you have to sort of reflect this consistently, right? You have to be willing to kind of reflect this understanding on a regular basis, remind them that you're in the car with them as, as they're going and journeying. All right, second thing we find is that um, they're willing to grieve with Job. And, and we said they kind of did the same ritual grieving that Job was doing in the process here. And, and grieving really, what, what, why grieving I think is so important for us. And we talk a lot about trying to grieve and lament here at Res City because we think this is something that, I don't know if it's an American thing, a Western thing or what, we did, don't do it well. We're just like, you know what? That thing sucked, but I'm moving on to the next thing. I'm going to find something else that's really happy, and we're going to push through it, and we're not going to feel any negative, sad feelings here. But grieving is important because what it does is it sort of, it sort of acknowledges the weight of what has just transpired, right? It's, it's willing to sort of say, this thing is, is huge. It's heavy, and like we've got to just sit in that for a little bit. We have to acknowledge what just happened here. If we try to blow past it, we're not going to process what just happened and what the feelings we're having with it well, and that's going to hinder our ability to actually truly move on. And so grieving is sort of a necessary thing within that. And when we acknowledge pain with people, we're acknowledging um, the, the weight that they're feeling as well. All right, So sometimes just sitting with them and just showing that you are also grieved by what is going on is incredibly important. And that leads to this next point, giving our presence. I think sometimes just being with them shows that we care, right? Um, Sometimes it's enough to say to them, listen, I don't have to be in the car with you. Like, I, I do not need to, like, feel the things you're feeling here. I, by virtue of not being the one suffering right now, I can get out, I can go and do something else and not feel this stuff, 
right? I, I, can choose, I can choose to get out of the car if I want to. I don't have to be on this journey. You do. You don't have a choice, but I do. When you say you're willing to sort of give up of your time to be with someone as they go on that journey, I think that that's just really, really powerful. I think it communicates so much to them, how much that you truly love and care for them that you're willing to sort of, you know, give up the fact that you don't have to be in this time to be in it with them. There's a, re- there's a lot of power in that for people. All right, I think we underestimate the, the, the power that's within that. Um, and and the, here's the thing, people suffering, they recognize it, and they'll, they'll, a lot of times they'll say, you know, they'll, they'll try to pull the car over and say, you can get out, okay? Like, they'll say things like, I know I'm being a real downer right now, you should go, you know, you should go hang out with somebody else, right? I'm just being a real drag on you right now, right? They'll, they'll try to get you to go do those other things. And when you say, no, I want to be here, I want to be with you, that really does just mean so much to people. And, and they notice that, that you're choosing to be with them when you don't have to choose that, right? It, it's something they don't have um, the opportunity to choose, but you do. And you choosing to be with them is, is just really important. And then the last thing they do, they, that they do here is they try to point Job to God. They, they, we need people, when we're suffering, to be pointing us back to Jesus. I think it's important because, you know, we'll feel like it's important, but sometimes it's hard to do, right? And so we need people who are sort of with us in the car, grieving with us, empathizing and understanding where we're at, who are still trying to, you know, gently point us to Jesus as well, right? And, and when I say to Jesus, I don't mean truths about God necessarily, okay? We'll talk a little bit about that more as we go, but I'm not necessarily talking about truths about God or, or aphorisms or platitudes. I mean actually pointing them to go spend time with Jesus, to seek him out, to sort of bring what, you know, to invite Jesus into the car as well, right? To, to kind of use, go back to that analogy. Um, I think that that's, that's a constant role that we play as we're with people in the time of suffering. Now these four things, they kind of need to work together, all right? You kind of have seen that as I've talked about it. If you have empathy but no presence, people aren't going to feel understood or cared for, right? They're, they're not going to feel that empathy if you're not actually around them. And if you try to point people to God without, em- without empathy or presence or grief, then God is going to come across to them as sort of harsh and uncaring. They're, they're, you know, they're just naturally going to sort of like feel that that God is also not trying to be with them in the midst of that too. So how you're pointing them to God really matters. And if you give them just presence with no grief or empathy, they're probably gonna like wanna kick you out of the car, right? <laughs> I think you probably all know what that's like. Like, okay, I get, thanks for being here with me, but you're making this a lot worse actually, you know? Uh, so, so we need those things to kind of go together. And we're gonna find here that Job's friends do that last thing. They give him their presence, but they don't give him the rest of the things. And Job is about ready to like pull over in the middle of a cornfield in the middle of nowhere and kick him out and leave him there, all right? So, so let's get into that here. And let's talk a, bit, a little bit about what Job's friends do that are not helpful and what sort of have, has earned them the reputation that they have of being these poor comforters. Okay, so it's a couple things, and we'll walk through these two. I'll explain how these happen, but they overstate their points, and they sort of speak above their station. They try to speak as if they know more about what's going on than they actually do. Let's talk about this, and what I want to do is I want to focus on Eliphaz, um, the, the, the friend who talks the most uh, of Job's friends, and let's talk about the, the crescendo that we find 
in what he says to Job. Because this section of the book, is a, it's a dialogue between Job and his friends. And so we kind of see the arguments or the conversations progress in each of them. And the progression of Eliphaz's, I think, is especially um, important to sort of call out. So let's, let's see what he says when he first speaks to Job. He says here um, in, in chapter four, verses two, and, uh, two to, to, to nine here. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. So he says, Job, listen, you have been a good friend in the past. Let us do it for you as well. You you have come and you've helped people out in, in their own suffering. Let us help you as well. And that seems to, to show, right, that he's got something helpful to say here. So what he continues on to say here, though, um, is in verses uh, 4 and 5 and 7 and 9, is, is a little bit less helpful, though. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the, up, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And the breath, at the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. So here's what he's saying is, we know how wisdom works, right? And it, and it sounds like stuff we've talked about already in this wisdom series. If you go back to our sermon a couple weeks ago, if you, if you um, get around cucumber... If you get a cucumber you weren't expecting, you probably did something wrong, right? If a cucumber doesn't grow when you thought it was going to grow or it turns out all messed up, you probably messed up in some way, all right? It, it's simple. And so let's try to figure out what you did wrong here, Job. Let's try to figure out how you angered God because God would only be bringing this onto you if you had actually done something to deserve it. And he actually, in, in chapter 5, he, he, he exhorts Job to, uh, to repent. He says it's good to accept the discipline of the Lord. And he predicts that if Job does just repent of whatever sin is there, that Job needs to confess to his friends or to God, then he'll be restored and things will go back to, to normal. Now, Job is wise, right? He, he knows that he has, not, he has followed wisdom very, very closely, that this is something he has really strongly desired, and he knows that he's not being punished here. He doesn't know what, what's going on, and he never figures it out, okay, by the end of the book. He never figures out about this scene in heaven that takes place between God and the Satan, but he knows he didn't do something that he's being punished for. And so, as he starts to sort of push back on Eliphaz and his friends, um, Eliphaz doesn't listen to Job. He doesn't try to understand where Job is coming from. He just kind of doubles down, and he kind of hardens himself to um, what he's saying, and he tries to say, start saying it even more strongly. And so we see this as we jump all the way to chapter 22, that Eliphaz says, says this. So is it for your piety that he, this is God, rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is, it not, is not your wickedness great and your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You, you strip people of their clothing. You leave them naked. You give no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Although you were a powerful man, owning land, an honored man living on it, and you sent widows home empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. This is, that is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you. 
why it is so dark that you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. So he says, Job, you dummy. You just don't get it, do you? You just cannot figure it out. You think God is rewarding you for some reason? You think that the, that like the fact that your family died and all of your animals and your land have been taken from you is some sort of show that you're righteous and good? Come on, you are, how stupid can you be? He's, he's just kind of um, pounding Job with stuff. He says, come clean. He's like taking him by the neck and shaking him. He's like, come clean, let's go, fess up. I know, we know you did something. And so he trots out these ex- extreme accusations. He accuses Job of all these things that he's completely making up, right? He has no evidence that Job did any of these things. And we know that Job didn't do any of these things. He didn't, you know, withhold giving water to those who needed it or um, sort of abuse people who worked with him. Uh, or people who, who, who came to him as a sort of great and honored man in his society to ask for some charity, and he, he turned them away. We know that Job didn't do this stuff, but Eliphaz is like at the point where he is thinking, something is so bad with Job that I've just got to start throwing stuff out there. Like, it must be so bad. This guy will not listen to me, so something must be really terrible. He must be far worse than I ever could have thought he was. Now, to be honest, when you're in the car with someone as a passenger and they're suffering, you might get annoyed with them sometimes, right? You, you might want to take the wheel because you think they're missing something. And, and they are, right? They are missing stuff. Um, and, and just because they're in pain doesn't mean that they're, that they're right or just because, you know, that they don't listen to what you're saying. And sometimes we do need to sort of be honest with people and tell them what might be hard words, okay? But... Don't get drunk on your own wisdom, because that's what's happening here, is, is Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad are so convinced, they're so convinced that they know exactly what Job is going through and, and what the problem is and how to fix it, that they are not open to listening to anything else. And, and they, they kind of um, get, get, just get drunk, they just kind of are, are so enamored with their own wisdom that they won't listen to anything else. And Derek Kidner, he's a com- commentator um, on, the book, uh, uh, on the wisdom books. He says this, and this sums up very well what's going on here. A closer look at the material shows that the basic error of Job's friends is that they overestimate their grasp of truth, they misapply the truth they know, and they close their minds to any facts that contradict what they assume. The book of Job is then attacking the arrogance of pontificating about the application of the scripture and God's fairness and of thereby misrepresenting God and misjudging one's fellow men. To put it more positively, the book shows by its context, the opening scene in heaven, how small a part of any situation is the fragment we see. How much of what we do see, uh, sorry, sorry, how much of what we do see we ignore or distort through our preconceptions, the things that we bring into a situation, assuming we already know. We often distort situations we find ourselves in when we're sort of comforting, comforting someone, and how unwise it is to extrapolate from what is ultimately our elementary grasp of the truth. So Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, they all believe they know how wisdom and therefore pain and and fairness and suffering and all this stuff works. They're so convinced they have it all figured out. They're so convinced that they know exactly why Job is experiencing the things that that he is going through, um, that they are just beating Job over the head with it. 
They, they, they're not giving their wisdom, their understanding, their preconceptions a chance to be reevaluated. Um, and that doesn't mean that they're wrong necessarily, but they're not even letting their conceptions be reevaluated in light of what Job is going through and what Job is trying to tell them. And so, and ultimately, I think the reason why they feel this, and we can feel this as comforters for people, is I think we, we, we were like, you know what, I'm going to tell them what I think is wrong, and because I can get out of the car, I'll just say it and, and I'll leave. Like, right? We, we don't have to ex- live with it. It's easier for us to sort of double down on what we're saying, because we, ultimately we can get out of the car, right? We, we can leave them. And so there's sort of no, no risk to them um, in, in the fact that what they're saying might be wrong. And, and so, um, like, they, they're, they're so confident in what they're saying that they, they won't let, let Job um, uh, say anything to challenge it. Now, I don't think, that, I think this happens in a lot of ways. Um, I think sometimes we find this in, like, the platitudes that we offer to people, right? I, I often, I would, I would imagine most of us don't find someone in suffering and go to them and say, you must have done something wrong, and I'm going to try to find that, you know, as much as I can and, and try to prove that, you, you know, God is punishing you. I would imagine most of the time that's not our approach to people in suffering. But I still think we do this a lot of times in how we like to throw out sort of, like, platitudes to people, right? Sort of, you know, truths about God that, we, we, that might be true, might not be actually that true, that we try to throw at people to sort of make sense of what they're going through. Things like, you know, God closes one door so he can open another one, or God is, gives it, you know, he only gives suffering to his strongest soldiers, people who he know can plow through it or something like that, right? Or, or it could be worse. You should be thanking God that, you know, it's not worse than this, right? That, that's one that we say a lot of times. Um, or, or even more biblical ones, things that are actually true of God, but again, sort of maybe assume we know more about what's going on than is. Things like God will only, um, uh, you know, he, God will only work good out of this, right? Like God always, he, he you know, brings good out of evil. That's who we know God is. That, that's true, but that, you don't necessarily know what God is up to in this situation, right? Um, or just kind of saying, God is in control. You know, eventually this is all going to change, and you'll be super happy again, and you, you know, you won't even remember it, right? We, we like to sort of apply these things we know about God. A lot of times in ways, we just don't, we just don't know what's going on. We're not willing to sort of be humble in the midst of it, Right? We don't know what God is doing when people are suffering, at least usually, um, just like Job's friends don't. Like nobody in the book of Job, no human character knows what happened in heaven to sort of precipitate what's going on. Yet they all assume that they do. Right? Their, their confidence that they know why this bad thing happened is totally misplaced. Yet they sort of stride on anyway with their chefs just kind of puffed out, beating Job over the head again and again with their wisdom. Right? Unwilling to consider that they might be wrong. And to us as readers of the book of Job, who, knows what, who, who know what is going on, they look like idiots, right? They, they look totally foolish, but they have no clue. And I think we will find ourselves in that situation a lot of times too if we're unwilling to sort of pause and ask ourselves, you know, to have some sort of willingness to just reconsider our, our quote-unquote wisdom in, in the midst of, of struggling and, and circumstances. And, and actually, like, th- at the end of the book, J- God shows up to talk to Job, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, more of what he says to Job um, in a couple of sermons, but what he, he actually does bring up Job's friends. He says, At, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, 
Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I would prefer to avoid God telling me that as I was trying to counsel someone that I was speaking like not truths about God. That seems like a situation generally we should try to avoid. And I think having some humility and and fear of the Lord is going to help us to do that well. Okay, and so this is what I want to leave you with. As you really think about what does it mean to be a good counselor for someone who is suffering, is to seek out humility and to seek out fear of the Lord. To seek out this, this, this thing that is the basis of wisdom that we've been talking about in the series, fear of the Lord, because that's going to make you the best counselor that you can be. It's going to help you to, to do these things like we talked about, like empathizing, being ready to grieve and understand. Just give your presence. To point people not to truths about God, things that might be true, but to just to God himself. Right? What they need in those situations is not for you to tell them to make coherent everything that they're feeling. What they need is they need to go to God himself and experience God. Right? That's what they need in that moment. They don't necessarily need to learn more about God. They need to be with God. And we can help people to do that if we are willing to sort of be with them, be present, and, and just leave it at that. I'm not saying don't, you know, at times offer thought. But be willing to uh, be humble with it. Be willing to say, Maybe that's not right. Maybe I have some preconceptions as I came into this situation that might not be totally right. That's what, that's what I think we're doing here um, uh, from, from the book of Job. And if we take these things on ourselves, we'll, you know, we won't just be people who are tolerated, I think, in, a car, in the car on the journey of suffering. We'll actually be people that are desired. People will like, seek us out as they suffer, right? And, and that's, like, that's really needed in our society right now, are people who are willing to not show up and just tell people what they think loudly and then move on, okay? We need people who are willing to to people in our society. And if we expand on this, right, we've been, I kind of framed it at the beginning about doing this within the family, right? Uh, f- uh, suffering is a community thing. When one of us suffers in the church, all of us suffer. But I think if we expand it out from just the church, right, if, if we Christians are willing to have humility and the fear of the Lord as we go out from this place and as we kind of experience other people who are going through pain, who are going through suffering, who, who feel hurt in some way, which describes a lot of people in the world right now, then um, it's going to make Christians, like us at Res City, uh, the, the right kind of people to come alongside and comfort those and be healers, right? The kind of people that those in pain that we know all around the world will want in the car with them, right? If we're being honest right now, guys, like I don't, a lot of people don't want Christians in the car with them when they're going through pain and hardship. They, they don't want us in the car with them, Right? whether that's something that we personally have earned or something that is, you know, they, they, they saw somewhere else or some other Christian hurt them in some way, whatever it is, I think it's important that as we live this out, that we're going to sort of give people a vision of who Jesus is that's going to make them actually want to invite Jesus into the car with them as well. All right, so we have to model that. And we talk about this a lot at Red City. The goal of of, of, of Christianity is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, 
right? We are saved, we are made new, we are redeemed so that we can become more like Jesus, both in the present and then someday in the future. That's, that's our hope. That's what we, we long for as Christians. And like, as we seek to live out things, we will be more like Jesus to those who are suffering, all right? And I think that should be our goal as, as we experience people who are hurting. And so that's our reflection question that we have for us today is, is how can I be more like Jesus when I'm in the car with someone who is suffering? Um, and I think it's good for us to ask ourselves this question. Uh, maybe you're in the midst of it right now, where, where you're walking with someone through some pain or some hardship, and, and you need to ask yourself this question a little bit more, right? Or uh, maybe you need to, like, uh, maybe you have been doing a good job of this, but you need to sort of be reminded of it. You need to, to kind of be refreshed with, with this thinking or this mindset. That's what I want you to uh, think about as we enter into a time of worship here as we kind of close the service. All right, so let me pray for us, and then we will, we will, uh, we will do that. We'll enter into some communion and some worship. Lord, um, we thank you that you come to us in our suffering. That's what the gospel is all about, that you put on flesh, that, that you, you became like us so that you may be with us in our pain and suffering, and in fact, you would take far, far greater pain and suffering than, than pretty much anyone has ever imagined on the cross, God, taking on our sin on yourself so that we may be redeemed, so we may be delivered from our suffering. God, if, you, um, if this is what you desire of us to, to do the same as well, help us to do it. Help us to be humble in all situations and help us to fear you well, God, so that we may be, as a church here, of the people gathered in this room or watching this online or listening to this, um, and also as a church sort of expanded out from here, God, of all those who call upon your name as Lord and Savior, that we would be people that are desired to, to walk alongside those who, who are suffering, God. Help us to, to live that out because it is what we are called to live. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.